Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 20, and I'm doing this episode by special request. So um, let me just stop before I get into the topic of the day. If you would like to request a topic for an episode, go on out to my Facebook page. If you go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com, you can find the link to my Facebook page at the top of the page. Go over there, like me on Facebook. And then send me a comment, or you can shoot me a, a email through my webpage and let me know what you want me to talk about. Um, I think that's a fun thing to do. There's actually both episodes this week are going to be on topics that uh, listeners have chosen for me to talk about. So uh, today I'm going to do progressivism, and on Wednesday I'll be talking about the 1896 presidential election. Now, hopefully that won't make people snooze and fall asleep. But I think that uh, the 1896 election does have some currency uh, for today and the 2016 election. Not as much as I would think the 1912 election has. But uh, 1896 is a really important election because you see some developments taking place in the American polity that will carry forward. But today we're going to talk about progressivism, which was actually part of that 1896 election. So progressivism. Um, also, if you haven't done so, go out to my website, brianmcclanahan.com, and get my free ebook. It's in not only PDF form, but also audio form. So you can go out there and get that. It's Forgotten Founders. And uh, I'd like for you to read it, download it, share it, or at least tell your friends about it so they can go get it on the website. Don't share it with them until they go to the website and get it themselves. But tell them it's out there. Say, hey, you know what? That guy, Brian McClanahan, he's great. I want you to go out to his website. Make sure you spell my name properly, B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan. Go out to his website. Get that free ebook. It's great. You want to buy all his other stuff, too, because they're great. They're huge. And uh, go out there and get those things. I think we're going to be using a lot of things like great and huge in the future. Uh, I, I think that uh, those those political terms are going to be become ingrained in American society. Not just that, but things like goofus. That's a great political term, goofus. I like that one, actually. <clears throat> so let's talk about progressivism. Now, this is an interesting topic. Um, I think one that people don't often understand. Progressivism as... Jeff Deist pointed out recently in a Mises.org piece, has basically taken over not only the United States, but really the world, the Western world. And that's interesting because a little over 100 years ago, people thought that progressivism was actually dead, that it had completely gone away, been crushed, never to rear its ugly head again. But I, 
I don't know how they thought that because progressivism is a cancerous ideology. And I do mean ideology, and I want to talk about that term ideology for a second because even that term is a fairly dangerous term, ideology. And it, at its heart is progressivism in all forms. So when we start talking about what type of ideal society we would like to live in, that becomes ideological by definition. It's an idea. We want to try to make the society fit to that idea. And I actually want to start with a quote from a progressive. His name is Damon Linker, and he wrote a piece on Hillary Clinton in the week. And this is his direct quote, and I think it's actually pretty shocking because he openly admitted this. He says, quote, Isn't it a tenant of progressivism that America isn't already great? That our national greatness is always a work in progress, a goal achieved only in the fullness of time? If conservatives are prone to nostalgia, the left is inspired by hopes for the future. Barack Obama, with his frequent references to the arc of history bending toward justice, certainly knows this, and I'm sure you do, too, speaking to Hillary Clinton. So, Linker openly admits that progressives don't live in a world which they like. They live in a world in their head. What he says that is achieved only in the fullness of time, but I would suggest it's never achieved at all. It cannot be achieved because it is an ideal world within the confines of their own brain. And if you look back to history and you start talking about this idea of progress, that is what you find. It is not something that can be achieved. It can never be achieved because the goal is always moving forward. Now, that is one type of progressivism. It is reform progressivism. There is another type of progressivism that I think is also interesting. But this is reform progressivism. And essentially what I'm going to do for the next 15 minutes or so, and I can't really do this justice in one episode, so I might split this out into a couple and come back to it later. This is the same thing I've been talking about in my classes for the last decade. Before uh, progressivism became hip to criticize and attack uh, by people like Glenn Beck, I was talking about this you know, a decade ago, and other people were talking about it before that, and of course... Uh, you've had an attack on progressivism for near 100 years. But the thing about progressivism, as, as Linker says, it's only achieved through the fullness of time, meaning it's ongoing. You can never kill it. It's not something that can just be done away with. And so when you look at the intellectual origins of progressivism, where you really start to see this stuff ramp up is in the 1800s. Now, it's there before it. Don't get me wrong. Progressives have been around a long time, and in fact, you might say that all humans are in some ways progressive. It's what makes us work. Tomorrow's going to be a better day. Tomorrow, we're going to do something to make our lives better or more productive, better for our family. That is progressive. We're thinking that uh, something is going to get better. Now, on the other hand, you can say that I already live in the best possible society. That would be traditional. You, you may want to work. I mean, if you're, a, if you're a farmer, for example, you're seeing the world move through the lens of crops. 
in the cycles of crops. Tomorrow, uh, my crops will grow. Uh, maybe I'll have a good yield this year. I'll be able to have a little more money so I can make myself a little more comfortable. But not just that. You're looking at wor the world through the cycle of crops. And in some ways, that's a slow-paced life. I think in many ways that's a slow-paced life because your world is not ruled by the clock. It's ruled by the cycle of, of real time, meaning that how the crops grow, what the chores you have to do around the farm that particular day. It's not really progressive. It's traditional. You may be trying to improve your lot, meaning that you might come up with a tool that's more effective to help you work more efficiently. You might have greater crop yield so you can have more money so that you can make yourself more comfortable. And in many, many ways, that's progressive. If you look at uh, the way people look at medicine, for example, we're trying to improve our health. That's progressive. Trying to make myself more healthy so I can live longer, eat better so I can live longer and more healthy and have a more vibrant life. Well, that's somewhat progressive. You're thinking in terms of having a better quality of life. That is progressive. But when you take that out towards society, that's where you start looking at things slightly different. Now, just about every society, even things like the southern slaveholders, view themselves as progressive. Now, in their particular mind, this is a different type of progressivism, and Eugene Genovese pointed this out in a book, little book entitled The Slaveholder's Dilemma, that Southerners actually were progressive. What they thought they had, though, was already the ideal society, that their labor institution and their social institution was perfect, that it was already the ideal situation for man to live in, and that some people were destined to be slaves and some people were not. And so it was a very interesting spin on progressivism. And you have to look at progressivism as a subjective term. Southerners at the time viewed themselves as completely progressive and within the ideal sphere of what they had created. This was perfection. It was the here and now as perfection. They weren't trying to make something in the confines of their own head. They already had it. In so many ways, though, that can be considered progressive. And they spoke in those terms. People like George Fitzhugh spoke in terms of progress, that their labor system was ideal not just for the South, but for the whole world. So we might look at that and say, well, that's, that's not correct. We don't view slavery as the ideal labor system. That maybe the free wage system that the North had, or we can say the free wage, not maybe, but the free wage system that the North had was more ideal. It was better. And that way, their labor system was perfect. And so you had these two competing visions of perfection, the ideal society. But within that Northern society now, there was another deeper strain of progressivism. It was reform or ideological progressivism. It wasn't what they had. It was what they wanted to create. So this gets to the idea of an ism, a set of principles, a core belief. But it wasn't just that. It is an ongoing charge to make something better because they don't live in the great America they can't live in the great America because the great America only exists within their head. And so what you start seeing is a dichotomy of theory versus practice, 
reform versus tradition, and ultimately reason versus religion. Now, it does not mean that religion cannot be infused with progressivism, because it can. You can have progressive Christians. And what you see oftentimes with moral legislation, things like prohibition on alcohol or drugs or gambling or prostitution, things of that nature, that is reform progressivism or reform religion, you know, religious reform. What they want to do is create a society, an ideal world, that's biblically sound, that they want to live in. And it isn't just suitable for their own home or their own community. They want to make it bigger. Now, not always. And this is where you get into the idea of decentralization. Decentralization, in some ways, meets the progressives halfway. It says, okay, you can have your progressive utopia, whatever that may be, whether it's a Christian utopia, whether it's a left-wing utopia, a feminist utopia, a communist utopia. You can have a libertarian utopia. You could have these things. Just don't force it on anyone else. You could have, so many ways, a side-by-side world where a communist utopia is next to a traditionally religious conservative utopia, where their laws meet the political community. You could have that as long as neither side is aggressive. And you would have a structure in place, an overarching structure, that would keep each society from being aggressive toward the other. But what you have in the 19th century is progressives becoming very aggressive. They want not only to remake their own backyard and their own home, they want to remake the entire world in their view. And this is what you find in all national movements even to this day, whether they're on the right or whether they're on the left. Because what they do not believe in is self-determination, local self-determination. They do if it fits their own worldview. If you're a, a Christian who believes that, and you're a progressive, and you believe that this is the ideal society, if you have a political community that's trying to have that, you're great with it. But if the other political community doesn't want that, well, then you're going to try to make it to where they have to have what you want. And the same thing with the left. If their idea of a political community does not fit their own confines of their own head, if it's not bending towards justice, as Linker said, well, then they're going to make sure that you conform or you'll be thrown in jail or you'll be sued or fined or whatever the case may be. They're going to make you suffer if you don't fit their own worldview. And so this is all born in the, idea, the theory of forms, you know, Plato's theory of forms, the form of the good. What is the good? What is the ideal? What is the ideal republic? What is the ideal society? What is it? And so it's going to spawn all kinds of things. Nationalism, Marxism, capitalism, and racism, which is actually what Marx defines. I mean, Marx defined the term capitalism and and racism. But utilitarianism, liberalism, feminism, Darwinism, all these isms are born on this idea of progress. And you have several figures in this. And of course, in a, and like I said, in a 20-minute podcast, I can't get into all the different individuals who have pushed this progressive agenda forward. But what starts to happen is very interesting. You get to the 19th century, and you really have to look at places uh, in the Western world, the northern United States and uh, Great Britain, 
and in some cases Germany, people like Karl Marx. But he, Karl Marx spent a tremendous amount of time in Great Britain. So the two areas that you really see uh, the epicenter of progressivism are Great Britain and the northern United States, in some ways France, because you have to look at the French philosophes who were moving the ball forward as well. And this is the Enlightenment. And maybe you can go back, and I, I, I've said in my classes, you know, really the Renaissance is the beginning of all this. We're still living in the Renaissance in some ways. You know, the Renaissance, the rebirth of the classical world in the classical text, Aristotle, Plato, uh, it wasn't just the, the influence of those things on art. It was also thought. You wouldn't have had the Age of Discovery, for example, without the Renaissance. Everything is built on this rediscovery of the classical world. And so you might go back to that. But regardless, or maybe it's this focus on the human. Humanism. Again, an ism. Humanism. Human values and institutions in conflict with religious values and institutions. You see, in Christianity, there can never be a perfect. You live in so many ways in the perfect. It's not perfect, but what you live in is the real. Right, So the only perfection you can have is in the afterlife, in the grace of God. You can't have it here. You could have a society that tries to conform to a biblical worldview. You can have that, perhaps, maybe in your own home or your own small community. But even what you had with the Puritans who were trying to do this, it still fell apart at times. All the time, really. But uh, you, you... when you look at progressivism and you look at how it conflicts with traditional, the traditional world and tradition, it can't, they can't mesh. And so the Puritans eventually decided that their worldview had to be spread. This is the city upon a hill. This is John Winthrop, or as I would have said in Massachusetts, Weintrop. This is John Weintrop trying to push the envelope. to try to make other people live like them. Whereas in the southern United States, as I mentioned before, they viewed themselves as progressive, but they already lived in the, re- in the ideal world. This was, and, and you have to understand southern society as well, that, and, and many historians have said this, mainstream historians, David Hackett Fisher, uh, David Borstein, uh, you have to look at this. Their culture was not created by their labor institution their culture created the labor institution because that culture that they wanted to live in was already something that existed in England. Eventually, they had a labor force that matched what they thought they needed in England, which was a serfdom. Now, it wasn't a medieval culture. They looked at it as a progressive economic system, but they had a labor force that matched the culture that they wanted. Whereas, so they just wanted to live like they could have lived in England. And if you look at the earliest settlers in Virginia, they were saying this. The ideal world was the world in which they already lived. It wasn't something else. They had an Orthodox church that told them how to live. They had a society that was stable, that they enjoyed, that, that uh, reflected their culture. And they didn't want anyone telling them that it was wrong. But the Puritans, the utopians in so many ways, believed that it was wrong, these reformists. So as they started to push their agenda around, again, this, this spawns ideas of reform. 
know, Charles Foyer, uh, who's had a very strange view on what the ideal society was, um, where you had these phalanxes that he, that he called them, utopian phalanxes. A society could only be so big, and uh, so this was the ideal society. It could only be so big, and uh, in these societies you had to have these, um, these phalanxes that were based on relationships, I'll make it PG, based on relationships. And that created the ideal society. And of course, in those societies, you know, he, he pushed for everything, whether it was feminism, communism, labor rights, all of these things, homosexual rights, all of these things were built into his utopian phalanxes. So that's just one example. And, and people started working on this, uh, and they started trying to form communities based on this, particularly in the northern United States. You wouldn't find utopian communities in the South because the South already believed they had it. But in the North, places like Brook Farm and Oneida, you had these utopian societies, what they called in New York and Massachusetts the burnt-over district. And many things were, were born off of this, whether it was feminism or uh, abolitionism, temperance, all of these things are progressive, moving forward. Again, they're moving the ball. And, and I think the best application of this, or the best example of this, is right now. Because you see, just a year ago, we were talking about marriage equality. And then what happened? That, that supposedly, now you can argue whether that's actually been legally done, but that supposedly now has been codified in the American system, that states cannot deny a same-sex sex couple from marriage, or a civil union, essentially, is what they're talking about there. The state is recognizing their union. But it, it didn't stop there, because you see, the progressive can't stop. Once they achieve that, then they have to keep moving the ball forward. So now you have the, the, that community moves forward to something like uh, bathrooms, you see. And then when, they stop, when that's done, when they have that, they'll move the ball to something else. What that is, I'm not sure yet, but they'll find something, and they'll move the ball to that. You see, so they can't ever stop when they get something, it's an ongoing process. It has to move forward because the ideal world only exists in their mind. And in some ways, this is a very chaotic and insanity-driven life. I'm not certain how you can ever be content. You can't. In some ways, it creates insanity because you are always trying to move the ball forward. You can never be happy in the now. Nothing is ever good enough. Nothing. And so as you look at progressivism, it can even influence conservatives, quote-unquote conservatives, because nothing that they have was that would ever be good enough. No, money, no amount of money is ever enough. And that's just not just conservatives. You have a lot of leftists who no amount of money is ever enough. Uh, nothing in your life is ever enough. It has to be more. That creates insanity because you're never content. And it's, it is the antithesis of tradition. There's a great quote from the Philadelphia Convention by John Dickinson. John Dickinson is one of the more important men of the founding generation. And he said, experience must be our only guide. Reason may mislead us. In other words, tradition has to be our guide. 
This is Chesterton's fence. You have a fence, and it's there for a reason. Don't tear down the fence until you know why the fence was built. Because if you just go tearing down fences, you're going to create chaos. Understand why the fence was there first. And then, if it's not there for a good reason, tear it down. But lots of people have called themselves progressive. And this is where I think it's funny to needle the progressives with this stuff. Because they'll say, oh, that, that's not us. We're not that. Adolf Hitler said he was progressive. Benito Mussolini said he was progressive. Vladimir Lenin said he was progressive. Communism is a progressive ideology. Marx is a progressive. I think some of them are more than willing to admit that Marx was fine. But just look at Venezuela and you'll see that communism as a progressive society, I mean, it doesn't work at all. So that's, what, that's where they're, they're living in the confines of their head. Oh, this sounds great. Everybody gets to gets what they need and they work as hard. I mean, this is, this is where they think that the ideal world would be something great. Everyone's the same. Everyone's equal with a capital E equality. Again, that's capital E equality is a progressive term. It can't ever happen. People are never going to be equal. Now we can talk about how, you know, what they mean by equality. But what the left wants is equality of condition, which will never happen. No one is equal. And I think the best way to, that people realize this, and if you actually say it in this way, they'll admit there's no such thing as equality. If everyone was equal, then I should be able to go out uh, and look at uh, you know, a football team and a professional football team, uh, pick a team that needs a quarterback right now. The Denver Broncos need a quarterback. Well, I should just be able to go out there and play because everyone is equal. Or uh, the Braves right now are pretty bad in Major League Baseball. Well, if everyone's equal, I should be able to go out and join up. They need a pitcher. They need a hitter. They stink. Well, if everyone's equal, I should be able to do that. But, of course, people will say, well, that, that's not true. You're not, you're not a great athlete. I'm not a great athlete. On the same token, I should... Hey, I hear NASA's looking for rocket scientists. I need to, I should just sign up. I hear that our uh, engineering department is looking for someone to design a bridge. I should be able to go do that. Well, I can't do that. I don't have an engineering degree or a degree or a mastery of uh, astrophysics. I can't do that. So not everyone is equal. Everyone has unique talents. Some people have more talents than others. And everyone recognizes that. But what progressivism wants to do with that capital E equality is level the entire playing field for the worst in society. The least intelligent, the least athletic. That's why it's dangerous. Because you will never have a productive society in that way. And that's not saying something that's progressive. It's, it's, the, it's living in tradition, the now experience you can't have a productive society where everyone is equal. It won't work. People have different talents and abilities, and they should maximize those and receive the benefits for that. There's nothing wrong with that. But, of course, this is going to infiltrate everything. Progressivism affects education. It affects the way we look at Society overall. You know, I've often said that Al Gore and Andrew Carnegie had a lot in common. They were both pro they're both progressives 
Andrew Carnegie was definitely a progressive. And if you look at the wealthy industrialists of the late 19th century, they believed that man was powerful enough to control nature. So did all the, any other progressive. And that's what Al Gore says. That's what all the global warming, the man-made global warming alarmists will say. That man is so powerful, we control nature. Now, I think that you could suggest that people should live more in tune with nature. They should respect their environment. They should enjoy it and respect it. But saying that we are powerful enough to control nature is a progressive idea. So Carnegie believed that. That's what industry was. They were controlling nature. So on the other hand, Al Gore says we're powerful enough to control nature. We're destroying it. We're creating it. We're making it warmer, etc., etc. We're changing the climate. Whereas someone who's not progressive would say, well, it's not, I mean, we're not doing that. You can't. Man is not that powerful. Man might be able to bulldoze a forest, but what happens after you bulldoze it? It grows back. Unless you pave it over, but even then, if you let that paved over place give it time, it will grow back. Nature is much more powerful than man. If you want to see that in practice, let's look at Chernobyl and the Ukraine. Look at pictures of Chernobyl now. It's being taken back over by nature. Man destroyed it, supposedly. Because, I mean, some of the things that's interesting about that, you know, they're not finding you know, bear with uh, two heads. They just look like normal bears. Living in that radiated environment. Doesn't mean it's good, but it's amazing how nature is so resistant. It's tolerant. But this whole idea of progressivism has now taken over everything. It's taken over the education system, the legal system, or political system. That somehow, if you look at uh, conservatives, modern American conservatives, they're really progressives because they believe that the ideal world should fit this. And they're going to continue to work from a national top-down perspective to make everyone live like that. On the other hand, you have the left that says, no, 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 the world should be like this. And I'm going to make everyone live like me or we're going to sue you. And that's where it comes down to. They're just going to use the legal system to their advantage. The real problem in all of that is that you could really have a progressive society if you just let people live, if you believed in self-determination, people are naturally inclined to want to live around people that are like them, that think like them, that share their values and beliefs. And that's okay. What you have to do, though, is think small. And so what's really funny is one of the mantras of the left is, you know, think globally, act locally. Well, it's, that's backwards. Or you should just take out the globally part. You should think locally and act locally. And I think that's what we have to start emphasizing to people. Think locally and act locally. Change your own backyard and don't worry about someone else's backyard. That is really a traditional thing, but it's not just that. You can have your little progressive society in wherever you live. You could have it. And that's actually a federated system. That's how the United States was designed. So I'll get to that now. If you look at the United States and you look at how the Constitution was sold to the states, the states could have their own political system, essentially, as long as it was Republican. But they could have, they had complete control over crime, punishment, schools, marriages, 
All of that was within the political community of the state. Not, they didn't, Massachusetts didn't want South Carolina legislating for them. And vice versa. South Carolina didn't want Massachusetts legislating for them. That was okay. They were in a union of incompatible things, but that union was for expressly defined purposes, which was commerce and defense. That's essentially what, when you say we're talking about nullification or decentralization, or even the whole idea of secession, it's a political community saying, we're out. We don't want to be part of your mess anymore. We want to live our own way. And the left could do this too. Now, I don't think I'd want to live in that society. Just look at Venezuela. Look at California. No, don't want to live there. Wouldn't want it. Wouldn't want to live in Massachusetts. Wouldn't want to live in Connecticut. They could have their own. Wouldn't want to live in Bernie Sanders, Vermont. They could have it, though. They could have their own little socialist utopia and move on. Just let everyone else live the way they want to live. So progressivism, conservatives thought they had killed it by the late 19th century because it had been shown that it wouldn't work, that they believed that it was this kind of strange utopian fallacy that wasn't going to work. I mean, these utopian communities always fell apart. You can't create that on a larger scale, uh, these reform communities. But the progressives never give up. When they have one victory, they will take another. They take, take, take. In fact, I would say that progressives are essentially in a state of uh, arrested development. They are perpetual adolescents because they are emotives. Whatever makes them feel good is what they want to do, and it feels better for them. They feel more relaxed if they're winning and they're right. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's in their own backyard. If their own backyard was already fixed, let's say it's, uh, you know, take a progressive issue that's going on right now, a, a socially progressive issue. We'll say this bathroom issue. It's not enough that if they already accepted these things in, say, Washington State, which they have, you got to force it on everyone else. It's got to be that way in every school district in America. Because somewhere out there, someone like them could be suffering. Whereas what they should say is, you know what, in Washington State, you can come on up here and live here and live in your own progressive community. Move to Washington State. Instead of saying, you know what, uh, we need to make sure that the bathrooms in uh, South Dakota are uh, completely like we want them to be. Or the bathrooms in, uh, in Georgia, because we all know those hayseeds down there can't have, um, won't do anything that's progressive. So we need to make sure their bathrooms are exactly the way we want them to be. So we're going to, ins- we're going to use the force of law to make this happen, or we're going to withhold money from you, whatever the case may be. So this is progressivism. As I said, it's an insane ideology. You will go insane because you will never get what you want, ever. It's always moving. And so this is why you have to say no. You have to be the adult in the room with a little, like a little five-year-old and tell a progressive no. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Uh, you have little kids. They want more, more, more. They're going to take this, take this, take that. And you just have to be the adult and say, you know what, no. Then that's not going to happen. No. Because that's not how we live here. So, uh, that's what has to happen with progressives. And in the late 19th century, you had the adults telling the children, the arrested development children, no, we're not going to do this. But of course, because they never grow up, they can't take that and mature and say, well, you know what? I think that's probably a good idea. Tradition is probably better. 
uh, the society in which we live, you know, it's worked for a thousand years. It's worked over time. Well, that that's good. Uh, you know, it's worked. So let's just stay with that. No, that's never going to happen. It has to be something different. Well, I've already exceeded what I thought I would do. Uh, normally, I try to keep these podcasts around 25 minutes. We're already 10 minutes over that. So uh, I think it's important to leave with this. You have to understand the mind of, of a progressive. As I began with this particular podcast, Linker saying that society never meets their expectations. It always has to change. And so this is why you know, well-meaning people think that, well, if I give in on this, then they'll stop. They'll never stop. You have to tell them no. You have to tell the progressives no, and you have to, in so many ways, ridicule them and make fun of them so that people realize how stupid their ideas actually are. You have to tell them no. Because what happens over time with progressives is they wreck everything because it's based on reason, not experience. It's based on utopian fallacy or ideology, not tradition that's worked for centuries. It's not based on anything that's tangible, anything that's real. It's based on what's in their own little mind of mush. And it makes you feel good, so do it. Whether it works or not, they'll justify it some way. And if it doesn't work, they'll say, well, we need to do that. It doesn't work because we didn't go far enough in this. If we just went a little further, it would work better. That is the essence of progressivism and why it must be stopped. Political progressivism is dangerous and disastrous. Because over time, it will destroy anything that tradition has built that's worthwhile and good. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. (laughs) 